Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Okay, notice in verses 42 and 43a, he fulfilled the Scriptures. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. And this recalls something in Isaiah 53, that great messianic text, where uh, Isaiah prophesies about the death of this suffering servant. And in verse 9 he says specifically, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So even in Jesus' burial, he's fulfilling Scripture. So everything about this, you can see, was designed not only hundreds of years before, which it was through the prophet Isaiah, but designed from all eternity. God had appointed His own Son, Jesus Christ, from all eternity, First Peter says. And here we see that sense of design about everything that's happening, including even His burial. Secondly, notice that uh, Jesus inspired courageous devotion. Here's a man named Joseph who's a wealthy man and had status in the society. Uh, he was a, a, a member in good standing with not only the civil society but with the religious society, and he risks going to take the, the body of Jesus. Uh, if one touches a dead body, it makes them unclean for, the, for temple worship. There were ritual laws one had to be careful of. You want to be sure you bury him before the sundown, uh, which would begin Sabbath. And, but even more importantly, he's identifying with a convicted, crucified, executed criminal and may, in spoiling his own reputation, as it were, in the community by taking care of the body of Jesus. So Jesus' life, even when folks did not know he was going to be resurrected, inspired such devotion among people who may have been behind the scenes and a little bit slow to come out in, open, in the open. Here we find Joseph of Arimathea goes boldly to Pilate. He would have had access to Pilate. He was obviously a prominent person. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he asked for Jesus' body. And notice uh, the reaction. Uh, and look at verses 46 and 47, and we see that Jesus provided irrefutable evidence for the resurrection. But notice even before you get to verse 46 that we are told in verse 45 that Pilate uh, learned from the centurion that it was so. That is, that Jesus was dead. You notice how Mark puts in his text these assurances that the centurion, who has done this a few times, and ought to know when someone's dead and someone's alive and whose own life was based on doing an execution correctly. And this executioner knew when he had done his job. And he told Pilate, and Pilate knew that he was dead. Pilate knew he was dead. The centurion knew he was dead. Why does Mark make such a point of this? Because the 19th century theory that's called the swoon theory, which is that Jesus, under all the pressure of his beatings and his crucifixion, just swooned, and was put in the tomb and finally regained his energy and got out of there 
That's called the swing theory. It did not start in the 19th century. It started in the first century. And Mark is saying, without saying it, could I have a word about this idiocy called the swing theory? When Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, Pilate wanted to be dang sure that the criminal was dead. And he checked with his expert, executioner. Is he dead? There are certain ways you can tell if people are dead. That is, there's no breathing. There's no heartbeat. It's been going on for several hours. That's called dead. The centurion checks it out. He's dead. And Mark says, let there be no doubt about it. And let's dispel this ridiculous swoon theory that was already beginning to emerge because people were wondering, how can this Jesus be alive? He must have just swooned. Well, of course, if you're dealing with only a natural paradigm that dead people stay dead, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable paradigm to live with. We've got to admit it. But if that is your paradigm and nothing else can come into it, well, there's got to be some explanation. So he must have swooned. And Mark is dispelling that in this, this account of the burial. And then, as we say, in, in verses 46 and through 47, you see several items here that also are the basis for the apostles' apologetic in the first century about the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice that he was wrapped in the linen. They're very specific about it. Why? Well, if you look at John chapter 20, you'll find that when Peter... First, but Peter dashed on into the tomb, and Peter, we're told what Peter saw. He saw the linen, the head linen and the body linen, lying in their places. In fact, it's described as though there's some, con, uh, there's a, some concavity to the head linen, as though, you know, the head linen is wrapped around the head and it still has its concavity. So it wasn't unwrapped. It was left in its concavity. Why? Well, what's the significance of that? That means that the, just as Jesus later went through walls with his resurrected body and just as your resurrected body will somehow be able to go through material walls, it's a, it's a new body, it's a new type of body. So Jesus went right through the, the linens. So obviously it wasn't a swoon and somebody got up and took their grave clothes off. It wasn't somebody who stole the body and tore the clothes off. It was someone who came through the clothes. So the linens are, have always been very important in terms of the apologetic or the defense of the resurrection. And then uh, they rolled a stone against the entrance. Mark says everybody knew that. The soldiers knew it and the women saw it. There was a stone. And dead people can't move stones. And somebody had to move the stone. We find the women later saying, who's going to move the stone? They forgot about it. You know, they got on their way, they remember, oh, no, there's a stone. How are we going to put these spices on the body of Jesus? Because the stone, we, we're not strong enough to move the stone. Well, I'll tell you who moved the stone. God moved the stone. He blew it out, you know, blew it out of the way. But he made, he made it clear there was a stone there. There's no way that someone could have come in and taken that body with a stone rolled against it and soldiers around it. And then thirdly, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark is saying, ladies and gentlemen, we had eyewitnesses, not just Joseph of Arimathea, but we had eyewitnesses who saw exactly where he was laid. They knew where the tomb was. Right now, we don't know exactly where the tomb was. We, most scholars suspect it's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And perhaps many of you have been there. Some would prefer the other tomb in the garden that the British 
uh, asserted in the 19th, 20th century is where it happened. But wherever it happened, we're not sure. But these women were sure. They saw exactly where he was laid. And so the next morning, when they go to put the spices on his body and to show devotion to the remains of Jesus Christ, they know where they're going. They forgot that the stone was against the tomb, but they know where they're going because they saw it. That's the point Mark is making. This is not a myth. This is not a nice little Hindu story. It's supposed to inspire some sort of cultural affiliation or some sort of mysterious sensation. This happened in history, he said. So you see the evidences that are laid even in the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was preparation day, and it was really preparation day. Preparation for something people had no idea what was going to happen. And I'll say some preparation. And that brings us then to ask, so, so what's all the meaning of this? So what? Well, the point is we are buried with Him. And Paul makes this point. We are buried with Him in our baptism. We are raised with Him in our baptism. So if He died, we died with Him. If He was buried, we were buried. And so we are fully identified with Him. We, if He was waiting on preparation day for a resurrection, so are we. So we just follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to sin, uh, we want to be as dead to sin as He was when His body was dead. So we're dead and buried with Him. Furthermore, we're buried with Him in the sense that when our bodies go in the grave, and boys are going to real so some of you, it ain't going to be long. I'm looking at you. Uh, you know, when you go down, let me tell you something, you are buried with Christ. Your body is buried with Christ's body. If his body comes out of the grave, good news. So is yours. If his stays in there, bad news. So is yours. We're buried with him. Our hopes are tied up in him. And then secondly, the cross is our boast. We come to the end of our whole study about the cross, the crucifixion, the death and the burial. And the ironic thing is when you get to the Scriptures where you find the, the apostles spend their lives bragging about the cross. You say, how, why would they do that? like bragging about an electric chair. Who's going to brag about some instrument of execution? But Paul says, May I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And we saw at the end of last time, there are three major objective accomplishments of the cross. Let me rehearse them. Number one, the character of God is revealed. God's character is revealed at the cross like nowhere else, even more than the Red Sea or the holding back of the Jordan or even the law coming on Mount Sinai. More than all of those events, the character of God is revealed at Calvary because if you want to know what the holiness of God looks like, you can look at Calvary and see what He thinks of sin. His holiness is so great that it demands that He takes the life of His own Son out of His own holiness and His view of sin. So if you want to see God's holiness, look at the cross. If you want to see God's grace, and you want to see how much He loves His sons and His daughters, you look at the cross and you'll see that He puts His own one and only Son to death in order to have many sons and daughters to follow Him into glory. He loves His children so much that He put His own one and only Son to death on the cross. You want to see God's faithfulness? When he makes a promise, you want to see if he's going to keep it? I'll tell you he'll keep his promise, even to the point of executing his own son on the cross. The Apostle Paul says, if he did not spare his own son, how much more 
will He raise us to eternal life? If He's done the most difficult work in keeping His promises, do you think that He won't keep the easiest work, which is to raise you out of the grave and bring you home to glory? He's already done the most difficult work. If you want to see God's faithfulness, look at Calvary. So if you want to see any of God's attributes in your most brilliant and radiant display, look at Calvary's cross. So that's the first accomplishment, is God's character is revealed. Secondly, we saw that God's people are redeemed. We are saved at the cross. That's what He accomplished. He purchased a people for Himself at the cross. We are, our, we are not bought. We are bought, but we are not bought with silver and gold, says Peter in his first epistle. But we are bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So His people are purchased. We're ransomed. We're redeemed by the blood of Calvary. So He displays His own character, His own glory, and He also saves His own people. And our glory comes from the cross as well. So we're saved there. And thirdly, we, we said that God routs His enemies at the cross. He destroys them. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, He puts them up to public spectacle, triumphing over them by the cross. It looks as though the world and evil triumphed over the Messiah at the cross. That's what it looks like. Paul says, Au contraire, hop along. Just the opposite. God has triumphed over evil. And the devil and all of his minions, they know it. You may doubt it. They don't doubt it. And the apostles tell us that is why the evil one is so angry right now. And that's the why, why we find such vivid, graphic, wicked displays of evil as we see even in our own city and sometimes in our own hearts because the devil is so angry he knows, says the apostle, his time is short. Why is it short? Because the cross has completely broken the back of his kingdom. It has shattered it. It is over. D-Day has been accomplished. And we're only waiting for V-Day, victory in Europe, because the landing has already occurred and the back of the enemy is broken and they know it. And there may be a furious battle that still has to be waged. There may still be a battle of the bulge, the last hiccup of the empire. But they're doomed and damned and they know it because of the cross, a mighty victory was one at Calvary. Now, those are the great accomplishments of the cross. But there are also some subjective accomplishments. Those are what we call objective accomplishments. That is, those are the things the cross has done for us. But Paul describes in the verse I just cited a moment ago from Galatians that through the cross, the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, that there is a subjective accomplishment of the cross. That is, there's not only something the cross did for us, but there's something the cross does in us. And here's what it does in us. It crucifies the world to us, and it crucifies us to the world. And the Apostle Paul takes great delight in this. You say, why would he do that? Well, because the world in its system is evil. And it allures us. And that is the problem with the world. It is evil, and yet it's so beautiful at the same time. And so we are allured by its wealth. We're allured by its beauty. We're allured by its privileges. We're allured by its power and its promises. And Paul said, what the cross did in me was to break the bondage to its allurements. I'm no longer the world's idiot. I'm a fool for Christ, but I'm not a fool for this world. 
And that bondage has been broken, he says, by the cross. Because, he says, what does the world look like to me now? As a result of the cross. Now I see the world as it is. As a convicted, crucified criminal. How attractive is that? How attractive was Jesus? He was one before whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And that's the reason His disciples fled in fear and shame and embarrassment. Because the one they were touting was naked with blood dripping down His face, dying on a tree like a convicted criminal. He was not very attractive. And what Paul is saying is, as a result of that cross, I now see the world for what it is. It's condemned. And the bondage is broken. Yes, I fall prey to it. Yes, I'm still a sinner. But the cross enables me to see it as it is. I come back to worship on a Sunday morning. I see the cross high and lifted up in my conscience by faith in Christ. And I see it emblazoned on the wall of the sanctuary. And I'm reminded again what is truly beautiful, what is truly good, and what is truly true. Not what this world has to offer in all of its brokenness and sinfulness and adultery. So Paul says, I boast in the cross not just because of its objective accomplishments, but because of its subjective accomplishments, because the world has been crucified to me by the cross. There's a cross in me. It's not just the cross of Christ. It's the cross I take up. There are two crosses here. There's the cross of Christ, and then there's your cross. And Paul says, I boast in this one cross with its two aspects because of the power it's had in my life. And he goes on to say, not only is the world crucified to me, but I'm crucified to the world. Now, there's a statement for you. You're going to boast in something that makes you look like a convicted criminal in the eyes of the world? I don't know about you. I mean, most of you look like you looked in the mirror this morning before you got up. At least once. And uh, we all do. Why? Because we don't go out and look like, you know, a bum. Well, at least, you know, get the thing parted, whatever we got left, you know, and uh, get the guy on straight. We all have a sense of wanting to look right in the world. Paul says, I take delight in the cross because in the eyes of the world, I appear as a crucified criminal. So the world has, the, the cross has crucified the world to me and I to the cross. And he takes delight in it. Why? Because as the, Paul, as the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ is a savor of salvation to those who are being saved. It's a, an aroma that is sweet to those who know the power of the cross. And it is the stench of death to those who reject the cross. And if it's the stench of death, so are you. And Paul says, I'll take my delight in identifying with my precious Savior. And if He is a stench to the world, then I will be a stench as well. And I'll find my delight in that. Just as the prophets and the apostles of old have done. So the apostle says, this is what the cross has done for me. So you see, the cross has accomplished something for us. It's accomplished something in us. And we even sing of it. Uh, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the cross of Christ my God. That's what the hymn writer says. We take our delight there. So all of these things about the cross have immense implications for us. Now let's turn to chapter 16. And we'll see that not only the cross has accomplished things for us and in us, but so has the resurrection. These great and mighty deeds of God, the greatest of them all, the crucifixion of Christ with His burial and the resurrection of Christ to eternal life are the great moments in history and the great moments in our spiritual lives. Let's look at the first eight verses here on page 1637. 
When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay, let's notice first of all in the first three verses that Christ's resurrection dispels our gloom and sorrow. Christ's resurrection dispels our gloom and sorrow. These first three verses, the women were going to the tomb with gloom. They were very sorrowful. They were bereaved. They were broken. They were devastated because the hope, the religious hope, the political hope, the hope for physical blessing in their life. They'd seen this man work miracles and and compassionately healed the sick and even raised the dead, and now he's gone. Everything in life had been taken from them, and they go to the tomb in gloom. Notice in verse 1 that apart from the resurrection, we too are hopeless. Apart from the resurrection, we are hopeless. They bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. They were looking for a dead body. And so often, unfortunately, in churches today, people treat Jesus as though he were just a great memory or a great leader of the past. And in a sense, they're still looking for a dead body. I told you that I'd gone to Newburyport, Massachusetts, and before I had my nice little surprise in the Presbyterian Church, I went to Unitarian Church, which is, a, as I mentioned, a beautiful Puritan a colonial uh, wooden sanctuary. I mean, I could just sit there all day just, just enjoying the ethos. But then a Unitarian church, Took, you know, it turned into a Unitarian church a couple of centuries ago. And uh, so they deny, of course, the, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resur- bodily resurrection. And they deny the Trinity. They, they believe that God is only one person uh, rather than three persons. So they're, they're not what we would call Christians. Uh, but they do uh, still make reference to the Bible. The old Unitarians, uh, the first Unitarians in New England, would have... Uh, held the Bible in, in rather high esteem and would have even preached from it. Well, I uh, noticed in the little narthex there to the, the church uh, some material, and you know me, I just picked it, it's free, I'll take it. So I picked up all this material in Unitarian Church and read it later, and uh, I noticed there were a couple of sermons in print. Well, this guy, I guess he, his sermons are good enough to put in print. Well, that's good. So I picked up a couple of sermons. Well, they just happened to be on Easter Day. And I just want to say to you, there is nothing more depressing than reading a Unitarian Easter Sunday uh, sermon. How do you speak of the resurrection when there's no resurrection? And, you know, people will use all this metaphorical language, very flowery language, about, oh, there's a resurrection every springtime and so on. I said, no, there's not. The tree didn't die. It just went through winter. It's still alive. It's not a resurrection. There's a resurrection hope in all of us because when we fail, we say, no, there's not. You didn't. 
bash your knee and, you know, put a little ointment on it and you feel better. You call that a resurrection, you know. These people just come up with anything to try to make some sense out of the whole idea of resurrection. Well, just, you know, resurrection always springs up eternal in every human heart. All this baloney, total baloney. And it made me, uh, brought to mind one of my uh, old bosses when I was uh, working in the steel business. Uh, he, he found out that I had some religious uh, interest, which I did. I just, just began to develop them. I became a Christian in my mid-20s. And it all happened right there in front of his face, I think. So he took me to lunch one time to give me the benefit of his experience. <laughs> and uh, uh, Harry was a Unitarian. So Harry said, Sandy, here's the way I see the resurrection. He said, we came home from church one day, our Unitarian church, and I got my kids around the dining room table, and I said, now you all just look at that chandelier right there. Just keep looking at it. And he said, while they were looking at it, I went over the light switch and I turned it off. And I said, all right, close your eyes. And then he said, now while your eyes are closed, what do you see? A chandelier. He said, there you have it. The resurrection. I said, huh, Harry? Uh, <laughs> so and he was saying, you know, they all wanted it. They kind of envisioned it. And so, in a manner of speaking, it kind of happened. Look at verse 1, 2, and 3. These women were not envisioning a resurrection. The last thing in the world they ever envisioned, even though they were told it three times over, was a resurrection. Let me tell you what they were envisioning. A dead man whose body had already decayed for three days and in the midst of all the stench to try to make him smell good with a little spice. That's what they envisioned. And they got their eyes full of something they never dreamed of. That's what actually happened, Harry. No Harry's involved here. I'm not speaking to you. I'm talking to my old friend Harry. So the resurrection absolutely is amazing because apart from it, we're hopeless. We do not expect it. And apart from the resurrection, we are helpless. They said, who will roll the stone away? And apart from the resurrection, you ought to ask yourself a really good question. Who is going to keep the Ten Commandments? When somebody commits a crime in our community, it's really clear, and we can name all the commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. We can label all the sins that are broken. But what about your own heart, the imaginations of your thoughts, even this week up until now? The words that have been spoken, the thoughts, and even the deeds that some of us have committed, who is going to keep the Ten Commandments? Who is going to live a holy life? Nobody's going to keep the Ten Commandments and nobody's going to live a holy life unless there is a power of the resurrection rising up from a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, promised our bodily resurrection, and lives in our hearts and causes us now to be able in some small, imperfect way to seek to walk the road of holiness with Christ. Nobody's going to do it without God's power. These women were totally helpless. Who's going to roll the stone away? Who can do anything about it? And it reminds me of Psalm 11, as I mentioned there, where we're given this famous verse, and sometimes I suspect even in our own city we've asked ourselves this question. Uh, as David said in 11.3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we're saying we've got to build the foundations because when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Who's going to roll the stone away? Who can change a city? Who can change a neighborhood? Who can change a human heart? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, I'll tell you what the righteous do. They look up. 
Look at the next verse in Psalm 11. He says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. In one sense, it doesn't matter what the righteous are going to do. It matters what the righteous one is going to do. And He is still on His throne. And that's what the resurrection tells us. He could roll the stone away, and He's the one who did it. He can raise the dead, and He's the one who did it. He can take a slob like you and me and make men of God out of us. He can do it. And He can take our dead bodies that are going to be six feet under in just a few months probably, and He can raise us up from the grave. He can do it. Who's going to roll the stone away? They're helpless apart from the resurrection. So we come to the resurrection with gloom and sorrow if we're thinking clearly, and most of our philosophers actually got this part right. They're a pretty melancholy, sad, cynical bunch. You blame them? They keep asking questions with no answers. You blame them? That's what philosophers do. They ask questions. They don't get answers. It's a real sad, sorrowful, depressing business. I'm sorry for any of you who are philosophers. That's the reason you're so sad. <laughs> and they're the thinking people in this world who are thinking with some intelligence and asking at least the right questions. Some of them... And they can't get answers and they're gloomy and sorrowful and just depressed and melancholy. Just look at, it, look at the whole line of philosophers. How many sanguine, cheerful golfers do you find among them? Not too many. They just sit over by the fireplace with their head drooped down thinking these deep, solemn, sonorous thoughts that depress them. And that's what the world does. But the resurrection dispels it all. It dispels the darkness of this world and all of our questions with no answers. The resurrection comes with a final, brilliant, radiant answer to the human longings and the desires of our hearts. In verses 4 through 8, then, we see that Christ's resurrection propels our awesome mission. It propels us. It sends us. It awes us. This is what the resurrection does. First of all, the resurrection confounds us. It is unexpected and otherworldly. They looked up. They looked up beyond themselves. They looked up beyond their feet. They looked up beyond the gloom and despair of this world. They saw something. They saw that the stone was moved away. And it was very large. And they entered the, the tomb and they saw something else. They saw a young man that could be an angel dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. That's what they saw. The resurrection absolutely confounds us. And, and the resurrection also alarms us. It is alarming. They were alarmed. If you look at the uh, resurrection accounts, I think I did this one time, and you look at all the words like terrified, trembled, alarmed, afraid, you come up with about 20 different words, I mean, or 20 different occasions of those kinds of words. It is clearly what all four evangelists are trying to tell us. People were not expecting this. It shocked them and terrified them. It was the last thing they were expecting. And it is, it is awesome. The whole event is awesome. When Eugene Peterson, uh, in one of his recent books, talks about the resurrection, he says the resurrection fundamentally restores the human ability to be awestruck again. He says we go through life and everything seems so ordinary, so flat, so two-dimensional, so plain. And we come to the resurrection, and once again, our cages get rattled big time. We're alarmed. We're terrified. We find it something that causes fear and trembling. We're awestruck, slack-jawed. And you can't read the Bible and say whatever. It's an absolute challenge to the boredom. And 
the, the lack of daisical attitude of our own culture. That's what the resurrection does, and you see it over and over again. It confounds us. Secondly, the resurrection convinces us. Verse 6. Why does it convince us? Because we have witnesses. In fact, credible witnesses. Now, you may say, are these women really credible? Well, no, not really. Because in the first century, women's testimony couldn't even be received in a court of law because they weren't credible witnesses. Uh, that's how a chauvinistic the first century was, not just in Israel, but everywhere. In Rome, the most sophisticated culture of the day, women's testimonies were not received. But isn't it interesting that the first ones who cite Jesus are the women? And here's why. God is saying to his church, including the church in this room, you are credible whether anybody else tells you you're credible or not because you're my witnesses. And I'm going to take you even though you're a convicted criminal and can't even vote anymore and can't testify with credibility in a civil court. I'm going to make you a witness of mine. And he's saying to the women, I'm going to make you the all-stars and the champions. You're going to be the first ones who announce the resurrection. So there, guys. And he says to the weakest among us, guys who can't even put two sentences together to make a, a, a thoughtful paragraph, I'm going to make you my witnesses. And you say, <laughs> no, God doesn't know who he's getting into it. He, he says, talks about me. He says, I'm no Billy Graham. Hey, look. Somebody changed Billy Graham's diapers. Somebody taught him Sunday school. And if you had a conversation with him, he would tell you exactly who led him to Christ and who reared him and nurtured him. And it was not people like Billy Graham. You may not be a Billy Graham, but you may change his diapers. And you may teach him in the nursery. And you may teach him Sunday school and help him in the youth group. And he may be in this room. And you can be a witness, just like these women were. They were the witnesses to the apostles. The apostles got the news from women. And Billy Graham got the news from somebody too. We're all in it together. And he can take what seems to be incredible witnesses and make credible witnesses out of them. And gentlemen, all you have to do is go to the empty tomb yourself by faith. All you have to do is to be slack-jawed by faith. All you have to do is to experience the resurrection yourself. And God will make you a credible witness to someone. That's the way it works. He takes that which is nothing and makes something out of it. So He has, gives us credible witnesses, whether it be the women or the ones to whom they spoke. We have a credible witness. It's passed down to us. There are not credible alternative stories. As hard as this world has tried to give us alternative stories, none of them are credible. You want to tell me the Jews stole the body and they're trying to put to death the Christian faith, which they were? All they had to do was produce some bones. That's all they had to do. Did they steal the body? Impossible. Did the Romans steal the body? When they saw the Christian faith as a threat to the Roman government, all they had to do was produce some bones or even produce some witnesses. Neither could produce either. They're all fabrications. There are many fabrications. The swoon theory, the Roman theory, the Jewish theory, all kinds of theories. None of them are credible. It takes more faith to believe those crazy stories than it does a bodily resurrection from the dead. There are no credible alternatives, and the gospel accounts in their simplicity have nailed the coffin shut on all the alternative theories, except for those who want to just spin a yarn and don't care about logic 
or historicity or any other way in which the human mind normally works. There were many evidences. See the place where they laid Him. And the, the church has been saying all along, come and see. Come and look at it yourself. We're not hiding anything. You don't have to enter into some drug-induced state to experience the ecstasy we're talking about. Just come and look at it. Come and give it an honest read. Come and take a look at the Scriptures. Come and read a few books. Come and ask a few questions. Come and see yourself. It's always been that way. It's not some special, mystified, esoteric knowledge into which you have to enter through some special hocus-pocus or you don't have to have some special personality or profile. Just come and look. It's always the way it's been. So the resurrection convinces us. Now, thirdly, the resurrection compels us. We, first of all, must go. And this is what the angel said to the women. But go. And gentlemen, if you have seen the resurrection by faith, if you understand the empty tomb and its consequences, if you believe that God has performed this mighty work, you have this word, go. Get off your butt and go. Get off your lazy lifestyle, your little nicely cocooned life that you've built for yourself that will keep all evil out and all cleanliness in, people you don't like out, people you do like in, life nicely ordered, everything in its perfect place. Get out of that situation and go. Everybody, go. Go where? Go where you need to hear the message. Where do you need to hear the message? Where people are lost. Well, people are just as gloomy and in despair as these women were on their way to the tomb. Ladies, you came here in gloom. You're leaving in ecstasy and awestruck wonder. Go and go to other people who are in, in gloom and despair and give them the radiance of the resurrection. Go. How can you hold this news to yourself? That's the picture. We must go. Secondly, we must tell. He says, tell his disciples and Peter. Oh, I love that, and Peter. You better believe it. You tell Peter that when he denied me, he did not do me in. You tell Peter that when he denied me and he thought he had sealed his fate, that he had committed his worst sin ever, the unpardonable, you go tell Peter that I'm raised from the dead and I'd like to see him. You go tell Peter, the worst of all the sinners among the disciples, the one who had committed what he thought it could never be forgiven by the Lord, you go tell Peter. That's what he said to him. The angel of the Lord said, go tell the disciples and don't you forget Peter. Don't you leave him out and don't you let Peter leave himself out. Go tell Peter. And then we must know. He says, when you go to Galilee, you will see him. Before you can be my witnesses, before you can tell the world, you've got to see him yourself. Before you can be an authoritative gospel writer, before you can be an apostle, you've got to see him yourself. You've got to be an eyewitness. And before you can tell anybody else, go and tell anybody else about the resurrection, you must experience Him yourself by faith. You have to be telling others what you've experienced. It's not an intellectual thing only. It's not a book they need to read or an idea they need to get or a notion or a doctrine they need to understand. It's a living relationship with a living Christ they need to have, not just understand. And you have it. And you stumble to try to explain it. How can you explain a relationship with the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth? How do you explain that? You just say, I'm in love. All I can tell you is what He's done for me. He's cleansed me of my sin. He has given me a new power in my life and a purpose in my life and an absolute certainty that I know where I'm going so that I do not fear death. You can tell Him what He's done for you. 
That's what you do by experience. So he says, go, and you will see him. And then, look, lastly, we must wonder, trembling, bewildered, afraid. Awesome wonder. There was one who said of worship, the definition of worship is transcendent wonder. And you know what's interesting about this entire book? We end here, and I'll say just a few words about the last few verses there, but we end basically here because most of the texts, all the best texts in Greek texts, the oldest texts, do not include anything after verse 8. So all those verses after verse 8 seem to have been added later. Uh, the King James Version adds them because the King James Version was um, translated upon medieval texts, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. The best texts go all the way back to the 4th century. And we recovered those later, after the King James Version was translated. So in the earlier text, the better texts, we know this was added later. So the gospel ends here. And you go, hold on just a minute. I want to hear some more about this good news. I mean, give me only eight verses of the resurrection. Are you kidding me? Or if you want to be serious about it, only five verses on the resurrection. I've been going through all this suffering for all these 15 chapters. And I got to chapter 14, and it's just blood and guts and tears and suffering and agony and passion. And I get to chapter 15, and he's dying on the cross. He's agonizing, and we're defeated, and we're destroyed. And you only give me five verses of victory about the resurrection? What's this all about? Well, it's all about trembling and bewilderment and fear. That is reverence and awe of the living God. It's all about, can this really be true? This is too good to believe, apart from God's power within me, encouraging me and emboldening me to believe that Jesus Christ is actually raised from the dead. It's all about going out into the world. The book of the Acts of the Apostles is the rest of the story. We go out with bewilderment, trembling, fear, and reverence. We receive the Holy Spirit who empowers us to go out into the world to give the rest of the story. What Mark has done is to end at the place where he starts. Because if you look through Mark's Gospel, you'll find several occasions where the disciples are in fear. In chapter 4, when he stills the storm, they are in fear. And they say, who is this who even stills the winds and the waves? After chapter 5, he delivers a, a, a gathering man of 6,000 demons. And he's sitting clothed in his right mind at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And all the residents are in fear fear and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over again, you find the apostles in fear and wondering. Even when Jesus sets His face to go to Jerusalem, they're in fear of what He's doing. And here you have again the presence of the living God. When God invades history and time and makes it known to the disciples and to those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it strikes us with worship and awe and reverence. Because He comes into space and time. And in Jesus Christ, He has done that. And by His Spirit, He has done that in our hearts to give us the power of the resurrection in our lives so that we live in a state of reverence and awe of the living God. That's the reason Mark ends here. We've got two minutes to talk about all these verses. This is kind of the story of our lives, isn't it? Amen. <clears throat> Racing through 11 verses or 12 verses. This text seems to have been added, but let me just tell you what I think it's saying. Verses uh, 9 through 20, we see that Christ's resurrection expels our greatest foes. And what the later writer was doing, even though it's not inspired, a lot of it is consistent, some of it not so consistent with scriptural revelation. But here he's telling us that we went out to defeat our foes. In verses 9 through 14, our unbelief is displaced by faith. Our unbelief is displaced with belief. 
You don't just lay aside unbelief. You displace it with belief, with trust in the living God. Secondly, in verses 15 through 16, our selfishness is displaced by servanthood. You don't just get rid of your selfishness. You displace it with serving your neighbor. That's how you get rid of selfishness. You don't just theoretically say, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. No, you start serving. And that's exactly what the witnesses of the resurrection do. Thirdly, in verses 17 and 18, our helplessness is displaced by divine power. We are helpless. He is not. And the key to the Christian life, the key to the resurrection life, is that we have been buried with Him and raised with Him to newness of life. And the Spirit has come to raise our spirits to a new power, to make us new creations. And we are no longer helpless. And fourthly and lastly, our failure is displaced by His success. One of the greatest fears of any of us in this room is that we're going to end up one big F at the end of life. One big failure. It drives many men. And what you find happens when you behold the resurrected Jesus and you behold what it means for men who believe in Him, you realize that all your failures are going to become success. But there's no way you can lose at the end. Everyone here, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a success and you're going to be a success. And therefore, you do not fear not success in the eyes of other men. It breaks the bondage to have to perform in such a way that you can convince yourself you are a success. When you receive Jesus Christ, you become a success in Him. And that's the whole story. That's the gospel for every man. And it began with one Jesus in Mark chapter 1 who came at the announcement of John the Baptist preaching the kingdom of God. The disciples had no way of knowing that it would lead to a cross and to a mighty resurrection. But when they experienced the cross and the resurrection and later could say, I boast of nothing but the cross and I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, they discovered this is indeed how the kingdom of God shall come. Through the cross of Jesus Christ and His mighty resurrection. Through your crucifixion, dying to yourself and being raised to newness of life. And indeed, that is good news for every man. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this good news of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank You that our fathers and mothers beheld it before us and faithfully passed it down to us and that they have given us the Word of God by Your Holy Spirit's inspiration. We thank You that we can walk in their sandals, in their footsteps, and more importantly, in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that is what we would want to do even today. Help us, we pray, in these days ahead. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. God bless you, gents.